0: Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I feel like I've been away from my mic for so long because I haven't done an interview since before the new year. So this is my first actual interview of the new year. I'm very excited. And guess where I am, folks? It's a gray day and it's not gray because it's the raining season. I am back in Brooklyn, so I'm happy to be here with some of my peeps. I'm actually visiting with some of my peeps in this interview. I'm really excited because this is going to be of my first like duet of an interview. So we're excited to meet both of my guests, very Brooklyn in a lot of ways. And so without any further delay, let me just get right to the guests. So my first guest is a mom freelance writer and content strategy manager. She has created editorial content and marketing strategies for The Vitamin Shop, Mass Appeal, The Examiner, Mommy Noir, Madame Noir, Stupiddope.com, Iconics, and Yellowbrick.co. She wrote branded content for a variety of brands, including Bacardi, Makers Mark, PepsiCo, Anheuser-Busch, and Vinique. She co-created the curriculum for the hospitality and tourism industry essentials online course with NYU's Jonathan Tisch Center of Hospitality and was the winner of the 2021 Budweiser Hashtag Sports Award for Black Storytelling, honoring her work on the pilot program for the Sneaker Essentials K-12 initiative. I love that about her profile. am really looking forward to hearing more about that. My other guest, who you'll also be hearing from, has worked with numerous spirit brands, celebrity chefs, cocktail bars, and industry experts across the globe. He starred in the Cocktail Kings on Discovery Channel, where he traveled around the world creating bespoke cocktails to reflect their destinations. In his current role, he oversees fostering brand advocacy for the Bacardi USA brand portfolio. His expertise and spirits knowledge has been featured in Imbibe, Complex, The Wall Street Journal, Time, and Cocktail Lovers magazine, to name a few. Together, they have co-authored Black Mixolence, a comprehensive guide to black mixology as a tribute to the contributions of black and brown mixologists to the spirits and in mixology industries. So first up, Tamika Hall, welcome
1: to the podcast. Hi. Oh my gosh. Listening to my bio like in stereo is different from reading it on paper. I'm like, ooh, who is that person?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. Kudos to you because you have a great bio. So let's get started. Let's just jump right in. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft?
1: I was born in Brooklyn. I was raised in Queens and low key ran the streets of the Lower East Side from a teenager and ended up living there. In my late adult life, I recently moved to Jersey City because it's different when you have children, so city life presents differently. And while they spent a lot of time in the city, you know, growing up and stuff, I think they learned the necessary skill. And so now we have hop-skipped to Jersey City. So I don't claim New Jersey. I still say New York City when people ask me, just so you know. So, (laughs) So yeah, I'm in Jersey City now.
0: Okay. So what would you say is your craft?
1: I've always been a writer from little, like before I could even write actual things. I had notebooks and my mom still has some journals of me like scribbling and just doodling, scribbling, doodling, scribbling. I always wrote essays and I was also a reader. I'm probably about to age myself right now, but we used to take standardized tests and they used to give like grade levels as to where you read. And it always said 12th grade and above. That was like the highest. So I've always been a reader, always been a writer. And regardless of whatever job I've had, I always gravitate towards the part of the job that involves writing. So for example, I was a teacher, I ended up writing curriculums for them, which is how I transitioned into getting a master's degree in curriculum writing and instruction. So I always find the writing parts of the, you know, the work. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to say my craft is writing. This is my second book. I self-published the book because I was like, I'm going to write a book. And I didn't have patience for the publishing industry and sort of the shenanigans I saw like happening. Like it's two years for a manuscript to be read. And I understand it's like a process, but also I was so focused on having the book in hand. So I did it, wrote it. It was great. So this was a different journey. And I don't know, like, who knows if I'll write more books. I intend to, but I like the fact that the work that I put my effort into is directly affecting people at a hyper-local, sometimes local and sometimes global level. So I'll take it however I can get it. What was the title of your first book? It's The Little Things We learn in Life. Ah, I like that. Like it was a first endeavor into something. So for the examiner, I had like a small relationship column and this was very like sex in the city was like a thing and everyone wanted to have a relationship column. So for the examiner, I would write about like first date tricks and things like that. And so I ended up inking 15 short relationship stories. Some were successful, some were not. Like just dealing with a lot of the issues that people were dealing with in relationships back then. When I look at it now, it's super dated because the things that we were dealing with in like 2011, we're not dealing with anymore. We have a new bag of tricks. So, I was like, do I re release this old one? And I was like, no, because it's not evergreen enough. So, maybe there's space to do a new one and sort of update the type of stories that are in there. I think the ones that are like Happily Ever After High School Sweetheart, they can be kept, but some are super specific to things that were happening during that time. So, Mm -hmm. I kind of pulled it off as per instruction. I had to like remove that one. So, then this one could sort of be there. So, then I didn't have the You know, oh, there's this book, there's that book. So fair enough. I was like, that's fair. But then that's what it made me think. Like, so do I do a different one? Do I do an updated version? Like, what do I do with it? So yeah. That's to be determined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I am also a fellow former teacher. And I'm curious, what did you teach? I was a teacher for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I actually went back to my old middle school to teach. I started teaching Spanish. Oh, wow. Okay. And I went into the principal's office. And back when I started teaching, like, all you needed was a nomination letter. So this oh. was back in 1999. So you would go in and you'd be like, hey, do you have any openings? And they'd be like, yes, Where do you teach? What's your degree? And then you can kind of work up to yep. having a teaching license. So it's a little different than how they do it now. But yeah. I started teaching Spanish. I had two of the most difficult classes in the school. But I think that's the best way to learn. Yeah, Because as you probably know, since you were a teacher as well, your primary experience is in the classroom. Like yes. they teach you a lot of things you know, in the books and all this stuff. But in my opinion, I learned a lot more being in the classroom with the kids and really just using my brain and common sense and how to maneuver certain things. But I started with Spanish, went to English. I taught social studies. I also taught math. I taught summer school every summer for like seven years because I, I taught eighth grade. So I wanted to see mm-hmm. my students out the door. Like a lot of them, yes, I knew where they were stuck. So I felt like I took a personal approach at making sure that they had the tools they needed. And sometimes summer wasn't enough. And even like past then, I tutored them a little bit when they got to high school, but just wanting to see them through the door, that was like my thing.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. I taught seventh grade science. And so, yeah, I feel you on that. That age group is a very interesting age group and it is just having that push, you know, that will change their lives ultimately. So
1: yeah, I used to take them on trips. So I taught in Rockaway, which is considered like the sixth borough. Mm-hmm. And that's where I went to school in Rockaway. So a lot of the kids that I taught were from neighboring projects. Some of them were from, you know, Bell Harbor, the upper area. But a lot of them lives within the confines of the school. And they would get up, walk to school, go home. And they really didn't do much more movement than that. So mm-hmm. I would take them on trips. We would take the train and I would show them, you know, this is where we are and have them map out routes to how we get to where we need to go. And I would give them like an address and say, we have to go here, figure it out. And so they would look at the training map and then they would tell me, we would write it on the board and see if it worked, And that's how we got to our destinations.
0: Nice. So let me ask you about, I usually ask why the where? And you've kind of already answered that in terms of why you are, in Jersey City now, moving from Brooklyn to Queens and then, and so forth. But I want to know more about your background. So tell me why the where for your family, like how did your family come to be living and working and having you playing in New York?
1: So my dad is Cuban and Jamaican. My mom is from South Carolina and they met when my dad came here. My mom was here. She would come up for summers from South Carolina. She lived in Harlem. She would go back and forth. And she was friends with my dad's sister, and that's how she met my dad. So it's very, like, old school yeah. how people would date their friends' siblings and so on and so forth. So it's a very old school story in that way. They ended up getting married. I mean, she dated other people, I think, before they met, and then they didn't date. And then I think she was in a did she like his brother? <laughs> Something like that. Long story short, <laughs> she ended up with my dad. Okay, They got married— they moved to Brooklyn, and that's when they had me. And then, yeah, it just kind of went from there. My dad went to art and design, and he went straight from high school to freelance work. He created a lot of the logos we see in everyday life. He did the Bachman's pretzel logo. Oh, wow. He did a few other things. He did the Sylvia's first, when Sylvia's first put her food like on shelves. Yeah, yeah he did the logo for that.
0: And and so folks who may not be familiar with Sylvia, Sylvia's is a well-known soul food restaurant in Harlem, and they also have a food line that's in grocery stores. Okay. uh huh.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't know the longevity of the food line now, but I know back when it first like launched, it was doing really well. Yeah. So I don't know where.
0: Right. If they're still in distribution and production. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But those were some of the, a few of the things that he did. And then he was assistant art director at Women's Day Magazine mm. for about, I want to say, 15 years. He worked parallel the art director. Fun fact, even like now, it was very, I guess, I want to say this appropriately so I don't make it seem bad, but my dad, is he was an immigrant and he was Black, very talented. However, he couldn't show up the white art director that was there. And so they Mm. never allowed him the space to be the art director. He always had to work parallel the art director that was in the seat. But he did all of the work for the magazine, the layouts, the covers, all of the things because he was the talent. But in true American fashion, they wouldn't allow him to have that shine. So yeah, shout out to Women's Day magazine. (laughs) So,
0: sounds like your father was a big inspiration to your creative side. Would you say that that was part of, like, so?
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. From a little tiny tot, he had an art table at home. He bought me a small art table. He bought me everything that he had. I had the replica, but a small version. And so I would sit next to him and do things he was doing. And he had typography sheets. Ah. I don't know if you know what those are. Typography sheets are where it's like font. So. Fast forward to today, we have like a drop down that tells us the fonts we want to use for a document. Yeah. Back in the day, you had to A, find the type of type you wanted on a typography sheet, and then you had to actually like rub the actual font. And like it was stencil y, right? Yes. You had Mm -hmm. to rub it, and it had to be lined, and it had to be even and straight, same size. So he would give me old ones that he was finished with, like he didn't need anymore. And so whatever he was doing up there, I would do. And I so I was doing layouts. I was doing all those things from tiny. And I was like, I'm going to do this when I grow up. And that was like, my right, that was my thing. Nice. Nice. Wonderful. Not that my mom didn't have influence, because if she heard me right now, she'd be looking at me like, oh, yeah, really? So <laughs> They were equally (laughs) yoked in the sense that they influenced me. My dad a little more because he had that creative edge that I have too. So my mom, she has it a little, but it's different. It's a little more static, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like it's in the moments. Like she has kind of like.
1: Yeah, she'll have the idea and like she would tell my dad and my dad would be like, yeah, yeah. And then he would, whatever the idea she had, he would bring it to life. It was weird. Would manifest it. Cool, cool. I like that. So when you were
0: growing up, did you spend a lot of time in Jamaica or Cuba and with your dad's family or were you mostly based around the U.S.?
1: So I was a very U.S. baby. I did not leave the country until I was in college. And I did not go to Cuba until 2020, right before the pandemic hit, like while New York and the United States was like shutting down, I was in Havana. Okay. And I would, I don't know if you've ever been, but There's internet, but you have to pay, you have to get a card. And so we would go to the park to check in at home. And my partner, he's like, he was like, we should try to extend the trip. And I was like, yeah, we should stay a little longer. So we were pondering that. And then every day I would call home, my mom would be like, this is happening. She'd be like, okay, now this is happening. And every day it was like a different, Daunting update. And I was like, I think we need to go home like now. Yeah. Because they were talking about closing the airports, which eventually they did. So, had we stayed and extended, we definitely would have got caught. Yeah. And we would not have been able to come home. And we spoke to the guy who was Airbnb being us. He was super nice. He was like, if you don't have cash, you can't get cash.
0: It's very difficult there. Yeah. So,
1: we were thinking about the cash we had. And then if we got stuck there, it was a question like how long were we going to be stuck there for. Right. So we were like, we need to just take, we, we need to just go home. Right. So we came home a couple days later, they closed the airport and that was that. Like my plan was to go and drive, find my dad's family. My uncle was supposed to send me some addresses so I can go try and visit. But it was just so much happening at the time that mm-hmm. it didn't. Happened so I am going to go back. Maybe, if not this year, definitely next, right? But it was really a different experience like landing and being there. Yeah, it's crazy. And I haven't been, oddly enough, I haven't been to Jamaica yet. Like, Okay. Yeah. So that's on my list too.
0: So speaking of your global experiences, I have a question that is my global speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and how or why you have come to value it as a global speak.
1: For me, oh man, there's so many because I feel like Well, I'm old too.
0: (laughs) Give us a retro one because it's always nice to hear like what what you were hearing, right? So I think a
1: good one for me is what's good. I still say that, like what's good. Mm -hmm. And what's good is like, it could have a negative if it's aggressive, like what's good. Right. If you have a certain hand movement or a neck movement, it means something different than just wanting to know how someone is yeah. or, you know, what's happening kind of thing. So I think, and that's something a lot of people still say, but I've been saying that for a long time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but you're so right. Like what's good is so Brooklyn. And I guess it's Queens too. I guess it's New York urban, right? Cause yeah.
1: It's very Lower East Side too. But if you ah. hear that in the Lower East Side, it probably is not good because what's good is like somebody's coming for you if they're saying that to you, so. (laughs) Right, (laughs) Uh, okay.
0: All right, so let's talk about your sneaker initiative. I'm really interested in in how that came to be and what that's about. So tell us more about that program and how you were awarded for that storytelling.
1: So my coworker and I were tasked with recreating a K-12 pilot for a program that was already in rotation. So there was Sneaker Essentials, but it was for adults. It was a self-facilitating online course that people can engage. It it was collectively like a 20-hour course. And so he and I were both teachers, and they figured that we should be able to figure out how to create an actual, like a K-12 elementary school. Well, we say K-12, but it's really like 6 to 12. K through 6 can use it, but the teacher would have to be really crafty in how she like manipulated some of the content, but it's doable. So we sat down and we broke it out. So the original course was six modules. We used three of the ones we felt were most important and compelling for students and ones they could relate to. And we built out a three-module curriculum for teachers to use in school that spanned over the course of a semester. So let's say this was a, a high school, a teacher could potentially use this as like a spring semester course mm-hmm. or a fall semester course and run through the entire half of the year and actually give students a grade because there's tangible items, there's deliverables, there's projects, there's all these things that you can do within the course of the program. So when I was in school, we used to have the stock market game and it was where the teachers would give you like the newspaper and you had to track stocks and it was super boring. And so we... <laughs> <laughs> So we did something similar where students had to create a portfolio of nine of their favorite shoes. And we used a site called StockX, not for purchase purposes, but for the students to see the monetary value of a shoe. Mm -hmm. So what they would do is track if the shoe was worth more or less, when should they sell the shoe? Mm. Should they buy a different shoe? And just basically speak to reselling which is now like a big part of sneaker industry. Right. So they had to track the shoe, the value of the shoe, and just talk about it as they moved along and really create narratives around, you know, what caused the dip in the value of the shoe? Why did the value of the shoe increase? Hmm. Would you sell the shoe? Would you buy the shoe? Why did you buy the shoe in the first place? And it gave them the skill to potentially use that for stock too, because it's the same System, but it's teaching them through something that they like and it's sneakers. Yeah. And I think the reason why the program did so well was because teachers were meeting students where they were at. Like this was a common ground, especially in Brooklyn, where teachers could not only teach their students, but potentially they were learning from them too. And I think being a teacher, that's super important for relationship with your students. Like a lot of teachers miss that small, tiny fact that if your students know that you're relatable. Yes or they can talk to you, or you know about things they know about. I know it sounds crazy, but they'd be more than willing if they weren't to listen to you. Exactly, They're like, oh, okay. So, you know, it's a tiny thing. And the teachers, that's one of the things that they said, like the students were over the moon to know that, you know, I was talking to them about this stuff, Mm -hmm. but that they were also teaching me things about the shoes, like maybe that I didn't know. So It was good to help teachers develop that relationship with their students, but also that the students were actually learning whether it was math because they had to add, subtract value of the shoe art. They were drawing and designing shoes, creating mood boards, writing because they had to create marketing briefs Mm -hmm. and marketing plans and science because it spoke to the ergonomics of a shoe, Mm -hmm. choosing color palettes, choosing fabrics. It basically showed them that there's a lot more to sneakers than just sneaker design. So even a few kids walked away with, you know what? Now I want to be a podiatrist. I want to be a foot doctor. I want to learn about this. So it kind of opened other doors for them where they're not. The only job for sneakers is design because it's not.
0: Oh, wow. That's excellent. And I think that mm-hmm. speaks a lot to relationships, right, is, and being seen, and particularly in the education space. And I think that, you know, old school education was very much, you know, the true and poor, the teachers at the head, you know, just kind of tell students what to do. And obviously, young people are not that way anymore. So the idea of being seen, I think, will and is revolutionizing the way that young people are learning and being a real participant in their education. So I love that. And that's, that's awesome.
1: When I was sent in the award like application mm-hmm. for hashtag sports, I was like, this is definitely not winning <laughs> because I was thinking of the category who we were shortlisted with was so broad. It was like Serena Williams and Kyrie Irving and all uh, these things. And I was like, oh my gosh. But the fact that the students were able to tie in everything that they did and this particular presentation was about Juneteenth. And this was in 2019 before Juneteenth was like, now it's so super commercial. And that's the holiday. Now it has like greeting cards and whatever. Uh And I'm just like, this is not a greeting card holiday, but sure. Right. So they were were learning about Juneteenth Mm -hmm. long before. And every year at this particular school, they had a Juneteenth celebration. Mm -hmm. So they already knew Juneteenth, why it was happening, what you should and shouldn't do. Like they were very rooted in the culture. So they knew Mm. how to celebrate it properly. And so they tied their projects into Juneteenth. And so their final like sneaker presentations were sneakers that told the story of like black Wall Street.
0: Wow.
1: Sneakers that told the story of, you know, the journey of slavery, like, they were so in tune with black culture. I was looking at them. And I was like, it's crazy, because some adults don't even know the things that they were referencing and the stories that they were telling through their shoes are things that adults adults can't even tackle properly. Yeah. So I was thoroughly impressed. And all we did was give the teachers curriculum. We did curriculum development with them. They asked us questions, but they executed the theme, everything. So yeah. Wow. Kudos. That's, that's great to hear.
0: So speaking of, and and talking about Black culture and and things about Blackness, Black Mixolence, how did that become your story? Your, your, you know, your debut published book? not self-published,
1: but your debut published project. I'm like, this is like the real deal. Like it really is like the book. Right. People are like, this is payment, Random House. I'm like, yes. They're like, it's a book. I'm like, it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so tell us, tell us more. So I was connected to Kingston Imperial Publishing, who had an idea for a recipe book to highlight Black mixologists. And it was really, it wasn't story-based. It was really recipe-based and highlighting the Black mixologist. And I was like, hmm, there has to be another way around telling this. Because this is like, Mm. I don't know if it's so, if it's fun. Not fun, but I don't know if it's engaging enough. Mm -hmm. So at the time, Uncle Nearest, that story was, it had just bubbled and was huge. Like it had just come out and everyone's like, oh my gosh, Uncle Nearest, Jack Daniels. It was like the buzz. So I was like, there has to be other stories where this can't be the only one. And obviously there's Tom Bullock. So I was like thinking of all of the things that, and I said, there has to be more. So I started like digging and looking to see like, what else had we done? Cause I know there's more, mm-hmm. what else have we done? Or what else are we involved in? And maybe people don't know. And that's how we got to the history part of the book. Sure. And so we tried to find stories that related to present. So like, for example, Pouring a little out for those who aren't here is something that we do as a culture now. But Mm -hmm. where did that actually come from? Mm -hmm. There's actually like cultural ancestral roots attached to the ritual of pouring out liquid for those who have died or luck or duppies or whatever it is. And so just making those cultural connections, that's how we got to the stories, the history in the book.
0: Okay. So you mentioned a few names that are featured, um, particularly the uncle, like I know the uncle nurse story and then the father of mixology. So tell us a little bit more about those characters and how you, you came to find and do the research? And and how was that journey of even finding the information? And I'll say this because right about the time I read this book, I also read another of my guests, Adrian Miller, his book on soul food. And so the idea of these people who were, you know, bar owners, et cetera, et cetera, that I was like, oh my gosh, that's kind of similar stories, like looking at the geography of the U.S. and the, the East Coast in particular. So how did you come across those stories? And what was that process like?
1: So first and foremost, it's a lot of digging and it's a lot of trying to find consistency in the story. So Mm. as slaves, we were not allowed to document, read, write a lot of stories of things that happened to us. And so the history is a lot of word of mouth. And so storytelling for us as a culture is super important because we weren't reading and writing back then. So it started with trying to find consistency in the stories, like some stories you could hear four or five different ways. And it really depends on who's telling the story, where they got their information from. So that was a challenge on some level. But then just looking at like the Black Mixologist Club, who was in the Black Mixologist Club? What was the function of the Black Mixologist Club? And when you start chipping away at all these things, it starts opening doors to other stories. Even with Tom Bullock, knowing that this is where he worked, this is his industry, who else did he work with? Because he didn't work alone. And who, what did his circle look like? And we know he served a lot of rich white men, but oh, he really served like old presidents. And who helped him write this book? Like It was so many things, so many tiny facets of history that made it more interesting to keep digging. Like the book could have been this thick, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's knowing how much, knowing when too much, too much. And I think the stories that we chose are just enough to send people out to do their own digging. You know what I mean? And see what else is out there. And I think that's the important part, not inundating people with too much, because I think we are overstimulated as a society anyway. So here's the content, take what you need, leave what you don't. But a lot of times when I talk to people who read the stories, they said that they've initiated a search to find out more or look and see what else is going on yeah so i think it's doing its job and i'm like just make sure that as you're looking for this information you're making the drinks in the back right <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what role do cocktails or have cocktails played in in your life like for you to kind of really be i want to say enveloped around the the idea of mixology
1: so my parents ate out a lot my mom she cooks Okay. Because, but my dad, as like an, an entertainer, right? He also was a DJ. Like that was another one of his freelance side gigs, and okay. he DJed at like the and Justine's, and these were all oh, like wow. clubs back in the yeah in the early I'm sorry late '80s yeah. early '80s. So he was outside a lot, as the, as the young people say, he was outside. <laughs> so my parents ate and entertained out a lot, and my dad. I think I wrote this in the intro, Mm -hmm. too. My dad used to give me the cherry out of my mom's drink. Yep. And so that started that. And then it was the, I'm going to drink wine at church. Like, that was my (laughs) whole motivation for doing First Communion. Yeah. And then they definitely were upset with me because I tried to drink all the wine out of the chalice. But...
0: (laughs) Get the book, folks. It's a funny story.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was then like my parents growing up in a Caribbean slash even Southern household. Right. Like a lot of these things are integral to a lot of things that we do. Sure. Like my grandmother was putting, you know, my grandmother always had Ray and nephew and we just knew it was the white. The water in the green bottle. That's what we used to say. <laughs> and my older cousins would be like, that's not water. I'm like, yes, it is. We'd be like, yes, it is. Because there's like, I have older cousins and then there's me myself and we have a little clan and then there's younger. So it's like, it's like that. Yeah. So there was always like spirits somewhere, but I think it was my dad and, you know, Showing me that, you know, when you go have dinner, you have a cocktail. Mm, when I was mm-hmm. little, then I went to college and it was a different mm-hmm. spirits experience because it was very bar and cake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then as I got older and came into my own like adult cocktail life, like I started enjoying certain cocktails. I started writing branded content for spirits when I was freelancing okay. and just really walking into a space that there's creativity here. And it's not like when you're learning and just chugging and you're pouring vodka and orange juice, because I was very much that person. Sure. I was that person for a very long time. (laughs) Um, You know, your palate and your palate changes, too. So I started to have a real attraction to cocktails, how they were made, what they tasted like, what Mm -hmm. was in them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize that a lot of cocktails have stories behind them. Like in the 20 mixologists that were featured, it's crazy that all the cocktails that they picked and they created had a story behind them. And I thought that was interesting too. Yes, Like that's a whole different level of book that we didn't get to, but Right. Yeah. But
0: yeah, that's other content that you could also provide to support the book. So how did you come to work with Colin? So how did that happen? How did you kind of find your contributors? How did how did that part of the putting together of the Mixolence book happen?
1: So there was a list of, mixologists to interview. And some of them hit, some of them didn't. But the ones that did are people who are in present day doing, doing the most interesting things, in my opinion, in the mixology industry. You have Tiffany Barry, for example, Camille Wilson, Vance Henderson, all of these people who are doing just really amazing things with their talent and just opening doors for people to really enjoy cocktails. And Colin, well, someone had to tell me these recipes are right, wrong, indifferent. (laughs) And he just brought a level of expertise that I just don't have in terms of spirits and alcohol. Like he is so well-versed in all things spirits from mixing the drinks to how to mix the drinks to what to do with the drinks to how mixologists should act and what we should and shouldn't be doing. Like he was really a huge help in terms of really giving the book that vibe. So that feeling you get from the book is him because he knows how to bring that spirit. And if you know him personally, you know that that's his, like that's him every day. Like he brings all that energy into the space. And once he arrives, you know that it's gonna be a good time for cocktails and all the things. Yes. Cocktails, conversation, everything. Exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Nice. What is your favorite recipe from the book? Ooh, this is such a hard question because there's a few. (laughs) Okay. So my favorite is actually arrival time. So I, although rum should be my favorite spirit, it is, but it also isn't. Ah, okay. Tequila is actually my favorite. And whiskey too. Whiskey and tequila because they both can be consumed neat. Like you don't need a whole bunch of stuff to, but arrival time for me And I think it's because Tiffany and I had a really good conversation and she and I are both cancers. We share a lot of similar experiences like across the board, but arrival time is special to her because it's the first cocktail Ah. she opened. There's a restaurant in Atlanta. Oh, nice. And this drink is actually on the menu there. Okay. The simplicity of making it and the flavor is just so good that... It's almost my go-to in the book because I can do, I can make okay. that cocktail without looking at the recipe.
0: So folks, that's on page 45 of the book. Yeah. And that's a arrival time and time meaning the herb. <laughs> I love the play on words.
1: I was going to say that. I was going to say that because I was like, yes. arrival time. But that's what makes it so cool because it's uh-huh. in the airport and arrival time. So it's like a play on words too. Exactly.
0: And it's by Tiffany Berrier, right? That's her name? Yes.
1: I know. I said Tiffany like she's my very best friend. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. So I want to turn the conversation to a little bit more about how you think and and go about your everyday. And so this is my mindset hack. Now, this is one that you can imagine, one that you practice or one that you know of.
1: So I feel like my mindset hack changes, not daily, but from situation to situation. So for example, I have recently entered a space where it's fine if it you're in a really good place, if you're okay with it happening or not happening. And it could be anything. Just knowing that if something happens or it doesn't and it's not gonna change how you're going to make next steps is super, it's powerful because you know that however it's gonna play out, I'm still going to keep going this way and I'm not going to bend or break or, you know, I might feel, but it's definitely not going to change the trajectory of anything I'm doing at this point. So I think that's a new one that I just stepped into and I like it a lot. During the pandemic, I think my mindset was a little different. It was very much built around strength and resilience. And I know those two words, I hate them both because I feel like they're overused and people really lean on them for trying to tell other people how they should act versus us just owning those feelings and letting ourselves maneuver through whatever we're moving through like people are so fast to tell someone else that you're this and you're this and you're that but I don't need you to tell me that I need to feel that so my dad was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer right in 2018 so By the time 2020 hit, he was in home hospice care. And Mm. of course, in peak dad style, it was the one of the most chaotic times that that could have ever happened. But he was like, Nope, I need to go out with all the things. And so I set him up with like round the clock, nurse care, doctors, all the stuff that he could have at home. But during the pandemic, like, that wasn't happening. Like right. people weren't moving around. Yeah. People weren't coming in and out. Yeah. They were mostly putting people in nursing homes. And if you had a fever, they automatically assumed that you had COVID. the virus. Yeah. yeah, So end of life symptoms, one of them is a fever.
0: Mm.
1: So I couldn't mm-hmm. even, if I wanted to put my dad anywhere because he had a fever and they were just like deeming it, it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that. Mm-hmm. It's that. Mm-hmm. So I had to stay home with him, me and him and my aunt, we would switch off. But we had the comfort box of drugs that the doctors would use. We had virtual visits from the doctor and we had to see him out. And so that's how we spent the first part of pandemic. And so when I say resilience and strength, but you have to feel that yourself. That's mm-hmm. what taught me that, mm-hmm. that people can tell you and you agree with them and you think you have that. Mm-hmm. But unless you feel it, In yourself, you don't have it. You don't have it. Yeah. So that's another hack. You have to feel it. People can't tell you that. Right. And then my third one is just you have to be upfront with your emotions. Like a lot of people Mm. ignore how they feel instead of feeling the feelings and then moving past it in that way. And it's very, very important to feel, address, confront. And you know, you pick and choose your battles, obviously, because some things, you know, but that's another skill. But ultimately, you have to feel in order to just progress. Right. So,
0: yeah. Right. Thank you for that. I really appreciate you sharing that story because I agree, you know, strength and resilience and, and the experience of it. You're right. And until you know it, you you don't necessarily know it. So, Tamika, before we let you go, I want to ask, you already said that you, you're a reader and a writer. So I always like to get like tips to share with our audience. You said you're a reader, but... I want to know if you're a reader, a watcher or a listener and what are some of your favorite reads, watches or listens that you'd like to share.
1: Ooh. So, I am a listener. I'm very much I have a wide musical palette. Given my dad was a DJ, I've listened to everything from Deep Purple to Teddy Pendergrass to Prince. Yeah. You name it. So, it really depends on the mood, but Music is definitely a go-to to set the mood, set me straight, get me through it. Probably my favorite. Okay. Next is Watch. So I know a lot of people hate this series, but it's actually one of my favorites. Sex and the City, I can watch a million and one times. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just because the way they captured New York, it's really for that. Like the way they captured New York, some of the nostalgic locations, things that they did, the whole element of writing with Carrie Bradshaw. And I know there's other things that I could probably reference, but for me, that's a favorite. I also like a lot of old New York. Like I recently started watching Season one of New York Undercover. Mm, Okay. Go figure. (laughs) And I'm like really all in. My partner's like, are you watching this again? He's like, and you're really surprised about everything that's happening. Like you haven't seen it. I'm like, I know,
0: (laughs) but... But that's the beauty of watching reruns.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, I saw it like 20 years, oh, however many years. Like you really think I remember what happened in these episodes? Like my brain is, is washed. Right. And in terms of like, I love Spike Lee movies. Mm -hmm. Those are another favorite to watch. Just his talent. And, and I recently did a curriculum with Ruth Carter. Okay. So she and I have been talking, we talk, we talked a lot through curriculum creation, but even post-curriculum creation. And so just talking to her about different things. And so now I'm going back and I'm looking at a lot of things that they worked on together. And Knowing her personally and the care that she took in doing costuming and so on and so forth. And then his mixed with his talent and storytelling, it makes watching those movies again, like it gives it a different ah, feel. Because yes. now I'm looking yes. at different things.
0: Yes, yes, yes. You know what I mean? Yes, I get it. Uh-huh.
1: So Spike is definitely on heavy rotation. And read. So I do like to read, but between day job, children. yeah. yeah book life like it's really hard for me to pick up a book and sit and read it I recently my most recent book was the Will Smith
0: okay Will. Mm-hmm.
1: Will was the last book I read read and then I read the four agreements like often mm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because that's another like thing that you read and you take something different from it every time yeah yeah just like all about love I feel like You read all about love in different stages of your life and Mm. you pull out different things, especially if you're going through something or, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like it applies different every time you read it. It's so crazy how that works. But those are two that are on my nightstand. And I just bought, wait, I I was in Portland for work and I wandered over to Powell's Bookstore. Okay. First, I checked to see if my book was there. They only had one copy left. Oh, nice. So people were buying it. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And then I picked up Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Mm. Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement by Angela Davis. Mm. And Mm. Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be by Nicole Perkins.
0: Oh, nice. Okay, so we have some really good show notes, folks.
1: Yeah, oddly enough, this book remember I was telling you, I wrote the relationship book, short stories. So that book is actually essays. And I feel like it's structured similarly, which Mm -hmm. made me want to pick it up and read like how she put them together.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's what that is. It's like essays of, or different stories about different relationships. And I'm sure it's, you know, different kinds of relationships. I don't know if it's family. I haven't gotten deep into it. So far, the ones that I've read are relationship like, People involved, but okay, like intimate
0: relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I feel like it's family, and I think it's important to examine all of them because all you how you maneuver through those relationships is completely different. Mm-hmm. How you relationship, family relationship, friendship, workship. There's different kind of ships. So yeah, good. Hey, that might be my next book. I might call it the ship. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll be ready for it. <laughs> Tamika, this has been so fun and insightful. I'm so happy that you're able to make time for this interview. And yeah, I just want to make sure that we tell everyone where we can find the book, where we can find you, and what's new and next for you.
1: So I don't have Twitter anymore because once Mr. Musk decided that he was going to dismantle the ship that was Twitter, yeah, I was very active on Twitter when Black Twitter was the thing. Like I've had my Twitter feed since 2010. So,
0: wow. sadly yeah,
1: yeah, I just deactivated it four weeks ago. Sadly, I might reactivate it. I don't know if I see things improve, but I'm just scared of how the content is going to reemerge and
0: yeah. what's going to happen. So yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're making that stance because I feel like, you know, we need to protest yeah. things that are not, not
1: going to decide for me how my content yeah. appears. I'm going to worry about that. You, you don't have to worry about it. But I am on Instagram. My account is private right now because work and just trying to, but you can request me and I'll follow you. Like, it's just really a filter for, and my kids are in middle school and they're like, your mom is Lady Blaga. So I know I'm like, (laughs) you guys found my Instagram account. (laughs) So not that there's anything risque. There's just like a, but it's just the the
0: boundaries.
1: There's a line. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of here. Oh, little people. Hmm. <laughs> but I am on Instagram. I'm Lady Blaga, L A D Y B L O G G A. That's been my Instagram sure. handle for like Twitter. Uh huh. Oh my gosh, like 10 years now. Yeah. And I change it a few times, and people are like, why did you do that? They're like, no, please put it back. <laughs> like, no, it's you. Keep it. Right. Yeah. They're like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. So mostly it's lady Blogger. the book is you can get it okay. from Barnes and Noble. It's both in store and online. It's on Amazon. You can get it from penguinrandomhouse.com. It's in a lot of local bookstores. And if they don't have it, you can request it. I know the Lip bar had it in, in the Bronx. So Talib also stocks black mixellants at Nacru Books in Brooklyn. So you can stop by there and get it too. Tell mm-hmm. Don I said hi if she's there. Okay. Excellent. Good. So it's all over. Like it's 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 out there. We did a two order run of autographed copies through McNally Jackson and we sold oh, out nice. both times. Good. And then we did our first book signing at Tales of the Cocktail when the book dropped on July twenty sixth. So Yay. yeah, we'll be back there again this year to do another one.
0: Okay. Nice, 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 nice. So, as we say au revoir, sayonara, for now, do you have any last words that you
1: adios all the things?
0: Right? (laughs) Any last words you want to share with the audience?
1: Don't ever count yourself out. I know we sometimes are faced with scenarios where we feel like this is the end all, that be all, and it's not going to happen, and I can't do this, but I'm here to tell you that it might require a little more work and a little bit more elbow grease, but Don't ever count yourself out. Nice.
0: Thank you for that. Exactly. Count us in for the count. All the time. So this has been another episode of the podcast. Be sure to come back for part two of this duet conversation where we'll meet with Colin Asari-Apia and learn more about the mixologist that is the other part of Black Mixolence. You can catch us on Tuesdays with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, share. Go out and buy this book. You'll love it. You'll 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 be making drinks for days. There's 70 recipes, folks. So you could spend three months just indulging in all kinds of cocktail, a black mix excellence. So do that. Go get the book. And until next time, bye for now.